As Ted indicated in episode 2, the Urbit ID public key infrastructure and the Urbit network are core to the way individual Urbits communicate and maintain self-sovereignty. In this episode, we hear from three members of the Tlon team, each explaining the part of the system they are most familiar with. OS lead Ted returns to introduce the subject. What is the relationship between the Urbit network and the internet? The Urbit network is an overlay network over the existing internet. In a very similar way to the way that the internet was an overlay network over the phone lines originally. And then it also layered over many other different hardware networks. Urbit layers over the existing internet in very much the same way. So we use the IP protocol, although only in a fungible way. We could replace that with a different protocol that establishes what physical addresses machines have, and that would work totally fine. Uh, We wouldn't even have to change the code in the kernel. But anyway, we use IPv4 for now. And we also use the UDP protocol, also in a pluggable format. So UDP is a protocol that just says, it basically just wraps like a a length and IP and port around a packet of data. There might be like a couple other pieces of metadata in there, I don't remember, but it's very simple. It doesn't, and it doesn't give you any guarantees. Um, It's just like, yeah, send this packet out over the wire and hope it gets there. And it might not. Most of the internet uses TCP, uh, which also layers over IP. Urbit's protocol, which is called AIMS, named after NASA AIMS. Um, uh, Wait, who's NASA AIMS? NASA AIMS is a a research facility for NASA um, that's uh, in the peninsula. AIMS is very similar to TCP. But it actually provides a lot more guarantees. Um, in particular, it provides a total ordering of messages, whereas in TCP, you only get the total ordering within a connection, and a connection stop and start. And so you end up with a lot of problems around, hey, don't click the buy button twice on this airplane ticket. That's a problem that really shouldn't exist. It doesn't exist in AIMS. And the, uh, so it solves that problem. And it also builds in authentication and encryption at the base layer. So in AIMS, every packet is authenticated and encrypted. It's from me, an Urbit address, to you, an Urbit address. It uses our keys to encrypt and decrypt the message. And that's, or encrypt and decrypt the packet, actually. So a message that I want to send to you is typically in, in comp- you know, typically um, composed of many packets. And uh, each packet's like a kilobyte. And so there are all kinds of problems that TCP has with security and identification and like a lot of the big attacks that expose, you know, 150 million people's data or something crazy like this. A lot of those are based at least partially on the fact that you can spoof all these low-level pieces of TCP because it was designed in 19, the 1970s, some in the 80s, and it wasn't designed at all for a worldwide, to be in a worldwide networking protocol that encompasses everybody where, you know, there are just as many scammers on there as, and spammers as there are, like, normal people. And in fact, if you turn on, I feel like most people don't know this, but if you just turn on a server on the internet and print out the things that come in over the wire, it's attack after attack after attack after attack. Like, that's, that's mostly what's going around the internet, right? Like, it's this horrible war zone. People have no idea about this until you've, like, tried to run a server and experienced it. 
But, you know, this is a big reason that people don't run personal servers in general. Is that it's so hard to keep them up to date in a way that where they don't just get taken over by the wandering, roving bands of, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, SQL injection attacks from China and I mean, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, so many of these attacks are just fundamentally, they're only possible because the system has no security built in. So people try to bolt on security later with things like HTTPS, right, the SSL, TLS protocol. But it's really hard to build something secure on top of something that isn't secure. Yeah, so every packet's encrypted and authenticated in a way where it's only you and the recipient that can ever decrypt it unless somebody steals your keys. So it's just a lot saner. It's a lot easier to deal with. Talon engineer Logan explains the user experience of Urbit ID, the reason for some of the design choices, and the topography of the Urbit network. So Urbit ID is an identity protocol. And so what that means is that it specifies a way for you to uniquely differentiate yourself from anyone else using a human comprehensible, and in this case pronounceable, identity. So you have some name. It's somewhat human pronounceable. It uses a set of syllables that don't really have any meaning. And it represents a number. And that number is just like an IP address in a lot of ways because you can send information or messages to my name and they'll get to me. And the Urbit system defines a protocol for how, how you actually get those messages from your name to my name just using those names, regardless of where the computers are or if they've moved or if they even know where each other are. So the Urbit ID system provides a limited set of these identities because we saw the way that email addresses were used. So email addresses are kind of similar. If you send a message to an email address, you know it's going to get there, but there's also all sorts of spam that occurs. 85% of emails go through Gmail, which is crazy, but why, why does that happen? It happens because Gmail has the best spam filters. And if you are sending from a Gmail address, you're less likely to be spamming. And so people use Gmail as, as this singular centralized entity that is just this one big corporation that has this whole network of, of these uh, email addresses that you can send messages between. But you're never really sending messages between computers at that point. You're just sending messages between different parts of the Google data center. And the reason why people do that is because you can't trust that if some email address sends you a message that it's a real person. You can't trust anything about it, in fact. And email would be entirely unusable if spam filters weren't as excellent as they are. And so Urbit addresses are scarce so that they'll be just valuable enough that it's too expensive for someone trying to spam the network. So someone who buys like a million of them and then tries to like get people to do some Nigerian prince scam. The idea is that you would make it too expensive to do that because people would very quickly figure out that those addresses were doing that and blacklist them. Whereas with emails, where you can more or less spin up an infinite number of them at very little cost, it's not feasible to prevent those types of spam attacks because the expected return of doing the attack is much higher than the expected uh, cost of uh, spinning up all of those email addresses and sending the emails. Whereas in Urbit, 
we more or less attempted to solve the spam problem, also referred to more formally as the Sybil resistance problem, by making identities scarce and thus slightly valuable. The main, the main difference between Urbit's identity system and Facebook's identity system, for instance, is that when I send you a message on Urbit, my identity sends your identity a message. My message goes to you directly. My computer sends your computer the message. Whereas if I'm sending you the message on Twitter or on Facebook or on Gmail, when I send you the message, I send Google the message, Google sends you the message. Or I send Facebook the message and Facebook sends you the message, etc. And so the main difference is that Urbit is peer-to-peer. In Urbit, when I'm sending you a message, I'm always doing it directly and only you can read it. No one else can read it at all. So it's always private, whereas on other things, it's never private or optionally private or trust us, it's probably private. Um, But what are the roles of the different parts of the network? So to be very succinct, uh, most networks that we currently use, DNS as, as the primary example, are structured hierarchically. So how do you go from Google.com to Google servers and actually type in that address and then somehow your computer gets data from Google's server? Google.com gets turned into a number, an IP address, without you even knowing it because it has asked the domain name system provider what IP address maps to that name. And only one of them does. So you asked, what, what does Google.com direct to? They said it directs to this number. Then you then asked that number, which represented a physical location, a physical server at a physical location, to give you data. So you ask them for data, and then you see the Google.com webpage. Urbit works very similarly to that, but has a few key differences. So DNS works as a hierarchical network, and there are two layers to that network. So the first layer is the 13 root DNS provider nodes. They're in 13 different countries. Originally, they were just in the United States because DNS was a DARPA project and was just a government project created to create the internet, basically. So they eventually decentralized to 13 different United Nations countries that each run a server that keeps track of what names map to what numbers. So Urbit is also built in a layered system. So Urbit has 256 galaxies, which are very similar to DNS root nodes. So they they maintain the integrity of, of what Urbit address maps to what name. So what computer maps to what name? How do you how do you actually find it? And they also will act as peer discovery nodes. So what that means, if you've ever used a torrent before, is when when you start and you download a torrent file in the first place and you open it in your torrent client, it will then go find different torrent trackers, which are websites which maintain lists of who's seeding the torrent and who's downloading the torrent. So who's uploading files and who's downloading files. And so by maintaining that list of people, you can then connect to people that will give you the files. Um, so that's how torrents work. And that's very similar to how galaxies work. They provide peer discovery services. So they don't really... They don't really send messages between different people that often, but what they will do is they'll let you know where those people are so that if you want to send them a message, you can send it to them directly. So wait, so we've got galaxies, stars, planets. Yes, we have galaxies, stars, and planets. Galaxies serve as the top layer of this network. So they 
are very similar to the DNS root nodes, except there's more of them. So instead of 13 that are in 13 different countries and owned by 13 governments, there's 256, most of which are owned by different corporations, and some of which are owned by some uh, software developers and people. Each of those galaxies has 256 stars, which are also uh, infrastructure providers, which act as other uh, peer discovery nodes. So if my planet, which is just the layer that you would own a computer at, so if I have a computer that is technically a planet within our uh, network naming structure, if I want to send you a message, I ask my infrastructure provider, my star, hey, do you know uh, what location this, this other name that I want to send a message to is at? And it'll tell me, yeah, I know where it is. Here it is. And then you can send them a message directly using the star to have initially discovered where they are. And that's the whole thing. It's not really that much more complex. Philip is a resident cryptographer at Tlon focused on public key infrastructure. He rounds out this episode by explaining what a PKI is, the differences between PKIs, and the way the Urbit ID PKI is implemented. So um, a PKI or an, an identity system is, it's a way to determine that the person that's talking to you is who they say they are in some sense. And, and in, you know, different identity systems have different requirements for what it means to be someone. In one of the, the biggest distinguishing factors between identity systems is whether you can have more than one identity, right? So most of the time online, you can you know, make an alternate account and people are fine with that. But uh, in, say, a government identity system, they generally want to make sure there's one identity. And this is also true of like uh, credit ratings and that sort of thing. They want to make sure that you can't switch to be someone else, you know, some other person. And an identity system is a way of, of saying this, this person is who I think they are. And there's two general ways of doing that. One is to is to ask some central authority if this person is who they claim to be. The government, it could be Facebook, it could be Google. Um, the other is to use a concept of cryptographic identity, which is where you can guarantee based on them signing their messages cryptographically that they are who they are. And this is what a PKI is. is it's a cryptographic identity system. We see PKIs in, in one form or another in a, in a lot of places. One well-known one is when you visit a website and it's HTTPS and it's got the little you know, lock symbol that is saying that your computer has been able to verify their identity in a, in a cryptographic way to, you know, to make sure that the information that you're getting comes from the person who owns that website. We also see them in things like Tor, where a, an address is just a, it's just a public key, basically. That, that's a fairly common way to do PKIs. That's also true of like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, where your address is just either your public key or a fingerprint of your public key that proves that whoever, you know, that when, when, you, when you send Bitcoin to a particular address, only the person who has the private key associated with that can access it. And so, I mean, the reason why Urbit needs a PKI is one of the, the main things that centralized services do is verify people's identity. They, they you know, do this, this authentication. Um, and most of these services you end up, you know, you have to log into because 
you're able to do something that is associated with you, with you, even if it's something as simple as, say, Hacker News, when you, you know, when you write a comment, it needs to come from you. When you upvote something, that comes from you. And so we need some kind of identity system, and it needs to be owned by you, and so that, that means it needs to be a PKI. So Urbit needs a PKI that supports Urbit's values, which in particular means that your, your identity needs to be permanent, it needs to be self-sovereign, you need to own it yourself, and it needs to be um, globally consistent. As in, you know, if everyone says the same name, you need to know that they're talking about the same person. And so there are no other PKIs that, that actually satisfy all of these properties. The most common one that they're missing is actually permanence. Most of the time when you have a PKI, the, your, your address, your name is just your public key or a fingerprint of your public key. If you ever change your public key, then you have to change your address and change your whole identity, essentially. The question is, can, can, a, you know, can a key pair be permanent? And I, I think the answer is no, for a, a couple of reasons. Number one, it's very important from a security perspective to change your keys regularly. It's the same reason why you need to be able to change a password. Even if you don't change a password regularly, if you're worried that your account may have been compromised, you go and change your password. A PKI that doesn't allow you to change your keys would be like you know, a service that doesn't let you change your password. And if you're worried that your password's compromised, they say, oh, well, just create a new account. Which, I mean, for something like Dropbox would be a pain, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. You just like make a new account, download your stuff, upload to the next one. But for something like Twitter, yeah, that's clearly unacceptable because all your followers, all your reputation, everything is associated with that other identity. And so you have to be able to change your keys. Another reason why you have to be able to change your keys is because cryptographic like algorithms you know, only have a limited lifespan before they break for one reason or another or hardware becomes more powerful or, or whatever. And so you need to be resilient to that, which means that you need to change your keys occasionally as well. It's, it's very difficult to have a permanent cryptographic identity that doesn't depend on a central authority. In order to have a permanent uh, global identity, you have to have everyone agree on a mapping from a name to a set of keys. If it doesn't need to be permanent, then it can be what they call self-attesting, where your address is just your public key, and you don't have to check with anyone as to whether or not that is the right person, because you can guarantee it, because they, you know the, the address is, is its own proof that this name goes with that person. In order to make a name permanent, you have to add one layer of indirection. You have to check with something, some some table somewhere that says, this name goes with this key. When I want to change my key, I sign a new message with my old key saying, ignore that old key now, here's my new key. But if later on my key is compromised, my old key is compromised, which I, you know, should be irrelevant at this point. If the attacker signs a message saying, this is my new address from that old key. If someone hears both of these messages, both my original one and this later on this attacker comes along with one, how do they know which one to trust? Because there's nothing intrinsic to the message that says when it was signed or, you know, or who signed it. You can put a timestamp in there, but that doesn't help because it's the attacker would just change the timestamp, right? What you need to know is which one was signed first. And this is actually exactly the double spend problem that Bitcoin solved. You know, in the case of Bitcoin, it's when you send Bitcoin to someone, you need to know that, that they didn't that they didn't send that same Bitcoin to someone else. Like, well, if they signed both messages, you need to know which one happened first, and that's the only one that's real. And so what 
blockchains give you, almost the only thing that they give you, is an ordering on these messages to say which one happened first. For us, that's exactly what we need so that when when you change your keys, we know that one happened and any later ones are are you know are signed by an attacker or by mistake or something of that nature and should be ignored. When choosing the blockchain, we had a set of requirements for what would be acceptable to us, basically. The first of those is it has to be genuinely decentralized in a very practical way. Like if it it, it if it ever like it can't be easily shut down and it can't be easily controlled by any particular party or that any particular party, you know, uh, block transactions from. Um, it also needs to be large because a blockchain that doesn't have a lot of hash power or is otherwise, well, it's insecure and something that is insecure is going to be impermanent. It's vulnerable to all kinds of risks that are not really acceptable to us. That left us with just a few options, the most salient of which are Bitcoin and perhaps its various forks and Ethereum and its various forks. We chose Ethereum because it basically it allowed us to to write these smart contracts and implement this much quicker than we could have on Bitcoin. And it allowed us to sort of tie into an existing developer community that is actually much larger than Bitcoin's developer community. And there's a lot of sort of off-the-shelf software that we can use and that our users can use to interact with with azimuth, tools like MetaMask and Etherscan, it's been effective for us so far. And it's also true that the the amount of data that we're storing on there is just this mapping from address or from name to keys, essentially. And we could, if ever, you know, if if the broader urban community decides at some point that Ethereum is not is not the right option and wants to switch to Bitcoin or some other blockchain, we we could do that relatively straightforwardly. Because it doesn't matter where the registry of all of the names and addresses are, it just it just matters that they're consistent. Is that correct? Right. It, yeah, it matters that, that they're consistent, that they're secure, and 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 that they're available. Right. That that people can access this information. You know, you know, something that most applications need is an identity system, and so having one built in is is a big win. Visit erbit.org forward slash install to get started. A Discord invite can be found at erbit.org and a Telegram invite at erbit.live. Turning to the world of crypto, Bitcoin ambassador to the Erbit project Christian Langalis joins us next to explain the importance of what he calls sound computing. 